Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we'll take a closer look at the government's latest debt ceiling of $31.4 trillion, which will be reached this week as wrangling is underway in Washington over raising the ceiling to avoid a serious government default and financial disaster. We listen to Dick Bovey and Matt Van Alstein sound off on the reality of what is happening on the ground in D.C. China's population dropped for the first time since the early 1960s. We look at what this means and at why Janet Yellen is seeking to improve relations between the U.S. and China. Dick Bovey has in-depth analysis on U.S. banks, their strengths and weaknesses, and at why some Midwestern banks are looking very attractive. The regulation of U.S. markets will also be looked at on this episode, as well as the non-regulation of speculative and crypto markets. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome back for episode 52. Lots to talk about, lots happening in the markets. Uh, The markets were closed yesterday, but in the meantime, a lot of developments out of Washington, Wall Street, the debt ceiling regulation, bank earnings are in the news. But I think we should maybe take the victory lap for focusing all our listeners on the important issues of the day. And Dick, your reports recently on the demographic crisis take center stage. At this moment, we see China's population took a drop for the first time since the early 1960s when they had a terrible famine. Um, Gosh, who saw this coming? But you did. Well, well so did Matt. I think uh, <laughs> you know, this has been one of Matt's main issues since we started these podcasts talking about the demographic problems of china uh but but essentially it, it's a real issue uh it's a real issue because basically we have aging populations in all of the we'll say highly industrialized countries which means not just you know uh, china and japan but also all of the countries uh, in in western europe in the united states um where you know by the end of this decade you'll have uh, death rates higher than birth rates in virtually every one of these countries. Obviously, it's already there in China. 
and and the net effect is the need for immigration is is phenomenal uh but it can't be you know what we're doing at the southern border of the united states it has to be a rational program to bring people in but the fact of the matter is economies can't grow if their populations are shrinking because there are less people to sell things to there are less people to make things for uh and i think that uh, you know we're seeing that here but the other thing about china which is kind of interesting is that uh, they basically had so much confidence in their economy uh that you know in the last couple of years they've been kicking out the uh United States banks they've been pushing us aside in terms of the uh equity and and debt offerings of the companies there uh assuming that they had so much money internally that they didn't have to use the outside world anymore and now uh you know with this company Evergrande you know now uh, seeking money from the western world to deal with its financial problems and with uh China now taking up equity positions in some of the biggest uh you know uh, consumer tech companies in the nation you know China has come to the realization that they need the west they need the money from the west they have to deal with the west and uh I I'm really interested to see if we do a 180 in terms of China's relationship to the United States uh and and to Russia because they're going in the wrong direction and they're going in the wrong direction big time and and I think they're beginning to understand that sorry when you when you say a 180 what what do you mean by that well at the present time you know as i said you know they they have been pushing out the american banks they've been pushing out uh, in other words they forced them to uh, sell back all their stock to you know china they have taken a greater control of the uh, you know the the, the uh, let's say the technology companies in the country they have followed uh, they have explicitly stated a policy that they don't want any company to get too big uh they've indicated a desire to you know disseminate wealth more equally across you know all uh, asset all income classes in the country uh and they have indicated a strong desire to support Russia in all Russia's uh, military and economic activities and now we're seeing them shift when they when they start to take positions in the companies that they were saying should shrink when they start to come to the west looking for money because they need it to assure uh, up you know their their uh, real estate companies that that are in difficulty when they start to opening up the door on covid you know everybody can go wherever they want anybody can come in whenever they want i'd say that's a pretty big 180 um china has a lot of problems right now dick even its gdp growth has weakened to 3% down from 8.1 in 2021 of course they had the covid lockdowns we'll see where that goes so we were all expecting this kind of a plunge but so its population now is hovering around 1.41 billion um so it's down slightly and on the uh ties with america and the west we have janus uh, yellen trying to smooth the ties with beijing what is she trying to repair here um is washington kind of worried um that if china hobbles and those ties fracture further we could have other sets of problems well you know the united states depends on china for a great deal uh we 
depend upon China for a lot of the chemicals that go into the drugs which are made here. We depend upon China for a lot of the exotic things like rare earths and and, and rhodium and 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 uh, you know lithium, uh, which are necessary to keep these iPhones and uh, you know electric cars moving. We depend upon China uh, for television sets. We depend upon them for, you know, apparel. We depend upon China for a huge amount of things. And to, you know, uh, cut off China uh, or to have bad relationships with China is simply not in the interest of this country. It, it just makes no sense whatsoever. Now, I believe that we should start taking into the United States, the production of all of the things that I just mentioned. But the fact of the matter is cutting off China, uh, having a, an, a a bad relationship with China, it makes no sense. It makes no sense for the United States. So if J Janet Yellen is trying to open up, uh, you know, relationship there, it's important. Also, with this debt crisis uh, uh, looming ahead of us, getting stronger relationships with Japan and China, the two biggest foreign suppliers of of, of uh, money for the U.S. debt, you know, makes a lot of sense. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully um, events will now allow us to, to deal with China more rationally uh, and China to deal with us with recognition that they really do need us. Uh, they can't walk away from us and, and, and fall in love with Russia. I think um, if we're moving in that direction, it's very positive. The debt ceiling is in the news this week and there's hue and cry over it and even in uh, your note stick you say a depression if we default could last a generation i don't know if you're um um where you were going on that but um it's quite a frightening a scenario if we head into a depression i mean i guess if we do default who who would argue with that yeah, well, let's, let's, what, what does a default mean? It means that the United States refused to make interest payments on its debt. Uh, and the United States is incapable of refunding existing debt. Now, you know, presumably, if the United States does that, you're not going to find a whole bunch of foreign nations stepping up and saying, we want to lend more money to the United States to bail them out. Uh, and you're going to find uh, individuals, companies, uh, you know, all of these uh, companies that have these legal requirements to buy, you know, U.S. debt, uh, all of them are going to be troubled. So then what happens? You know, we'll, we'll start by shutting the national parks. We'll start by uh, reducing the hours of work. We'll start by, uh, you know, cutting at back unemployment. But then we, we knock down Social Security payments. Then we knock down Medicare payments. Now you're talking about a direct hit at the core of the United States economy, particularly given what we've talked about concerning who works in education and who works in uh, healthcare in the United States. And, you know, you don't recover from that very quickly. You have to restructure the whole financial system in the United States at every level, not just at the United States, all the state and local governments who get all these payments from the United States or the companies that get all these subsidies from the United States or the individuals who are getting all these direct payments from the United States, all that has to be restructured. You can't, so I, I take a different view on this. First, first off, I, I love the idea that America is going to default for the first time on our debt because, yes, I know there's technical definitions, but we've been defaulting on our debt for a long, long time through inflation. The idea that buying our debt 
is a way to to secure your economic purchasing power has been untrue for a long, long time, um, especially now when inflation is extremely higher than the interest payments. The second, you know, the idea that a technical default um, will stop foreign countries from buying our debt. Well, which foreign countries are buying our debt now? The, all, all, the best you have is Japan isn't selling our debt. The only buyer of our debt is the banks that are forced to buy it because of balance sheet rules and the Fed. And in terms of not getting their coupon payments at the right time, well, who cares? They're going to get their coupon payments. They know it. You know it. I know it. We can. The, the, the printing machine goes burr, and they turn it on, and they pay their debts at some point. The debt ceiling crisis is a, a joke. It's, it's a thing that the media likes to do to embarrass Republicans, and, and Republicans are Lucy being tricked by, I can't remember who tricks Lucy into kicking the football. Is it Snoopy or, or Charlie Brown? One of these people goes out and tricks, tricks Lucy. <laughs> and the Democrats and the media trick the Republicans into thinking that raising the debt ceiling is something material. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when California defaulted on their debt and shut down and um, the government started issuing IOUs. And this was back when the federal interest rate was you know 1% or 0% or whatever. And so California was out printing these IOUs that had three and a half, four percent coupons. And we we set up, you know, to be able to trade them. We thought that it'd be an interesting trade. And we, you know, started out bidding, you know, 98 cents on the dollar, thinking that would be cute. And lo and behold, these things were trading at 101, 102 right off the bat. You made more money getting paid in IOUs if you were a, a debtor to California than if you had getting paid in cash, because you could flip them because the interest rate was so high. And no, no one ever thought that California wasn't going to come back at some point in time and fix their constitutional crisis and pay their debts. I mean, I, I get that it's embarrassing. I get that it looks like we're third world, but I just don't think the materiality of it is all that important. And finally, there's two or three different tricks the government could use if they want to you know, show the wizard behind the curtain. They could print the trillion-dollar coin uh, or mint the trillion-dollar coin. Um, you know, I, I know it's a gimmick. I know it's 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 funky. I know it. It's kind of embarrassing, but every everything I've ever read on it is that it's technically legal. Um, so print a trillion dollar coin, deposit it. Print twenty trillion dollar coins and deposit it. I mean, the the tell that you know that this is a gimmick is the Democrats have had full control of the government for the past two years. They've passed numerous bills that, um, including uh, one that didn't require sixty votes in the Senate through reconciliation, that they could have attached a debt ceiling limit ceiling increase of, you know, call it a hundred quadrillion dollars and just ended this charade for all time and all eternity. But instead they didn't because they know they like the issue. They know it embarrasses their political opponents, but they also know at the end of the day it's meaningless. I, I don't I don't think that the debt ceiling issue is anything but political theater. Well first off, um the foreign buyers of uh, U.S. debt are increasing, not decreasing, all right? In other words, uh, Japan and China are only two of uh, 50 or 60 countries who buy debt uh, in the, you know, from the, who buy the United States debt. Uh, second off, uh, there are companies, uh, you know, a vast number of uh, pension funds uh, and other entities uh, that, that run money that have uh, legal requirements which would force them to stop buying the debt. Uh, the banks, of course, can be uh, muscled into buying the debt. Uh, but basically, uh, you know, to, to assume that the foreigners have stopped buying the debt because uh, China has is not correct. I mean, the, the foreigners are buying our debt. 
the, the other thing is that there's a huge amount of debt coming out of uh, purchases coming from Luxembourg, uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, and, you know, other, uh, you know, Bermuda, all of these uh, places which are, you know, uh, havens, uh, tax havens, and those people have been buying the debt. In fact, they've been the most aggressive buyers of the debt, and they can't do it. The United States cannot print IOUs because when you say that you've reached the debt ceiling, an IOU is an increase in debt. So the United States cannot pay, pay you know, print IOUs. Pay, and I, look, I agree with you. This is a political football and that, you know, it's going to be resolved, but it's going to be discussed in detail. And we are going to be shutting down different parts of the U.S. government until, you know, there is some sort of uh, an agreement in Washington to, to do it again. Uh, and, you know, we can attack the Democrats for the spending bills, but the biggest deficit in a single year was under Trump. So the net effect is, you know, the, you know, when the Republicans say, you know, we we don't want to increase the debt, then they shouldn't do it when they have the control of the House and and the presidency. It, if the Democrats say we don't want to increase the debt, they shouldn't do it either. But they both do it. They both do it equally when they're in power. There's no indication whatsoever of Republicans trying to lower the debt when they are in control of government. And there isn't any indication that the Democrats are either. I think, I think you're misunderstanding, or maybe I misstated it. I, I, what I'm saying is the Democrats say that the debt ceiling is something that shouldn't be, you know, they, 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 from their solemnity of you know, points of pride, that the debt ceiling is just something that the Republicans shouldn't use as a political football, and they you know, use it to embarrass Republicans. Right? What I meant by them passing these bills is I agree completely. I mean, my goodness, the Republicans are, are spendthrifts and, and are hypocrites when it comes to it. But what I meant was the Democrats who say that debt ceiling is a joke pass up opportunity after opportunity to get rid of the debt ceiling. They could just pass the statute that says there's no debt ceiling anymore, and then we're done. But they just don't do it because they like the, the political tool of, of the hammer to beat the Republicans over the head with it. You know, as I said many times in these uh, podcasts, I don't trust either party. I don't like either party. I don't like the way uh, the government is being run. And, you know, the fact that this is just one more evidence of it is is not surprising. Um, two numbers here, Dick and Matt, your comments would be really fascinating. I mean, the <clears throat> the debt ceiling um, is at, what, $31.4 And so we could limp into the spring before this whole thing gets resolved. But the other issue is U.S. debt held by the public now is 100% of GDP. Debt keeps growing everywhere. Unfunded liabilities keep growing. I've seen numbers of 100 trillion is the real debt of the United States. I mean, how further along can you go without some kind of a catastrophe? We've talked about this. It's a recurring theme. Dick has mentioned it from his legacy on Wall Street. This came up when you started on Wall Street, but at some point it becomes a, a serious issue. You, you just can't keep printing money. Well, I, th I think we are at that point, uh, but I did think it in 1972. <laughs> 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 I've, got, I've got to be honest, uh, but the reason why I think it now more so uh, than in 1972 is that in 1972, uh, the, uh, tr the Federal Reserve was getting all of its money from simply printing hard cash, all right? And it had the ability to do that. Uh, they, they were not, it was not getting money from uh, taking uh, electronic money. Uh, they, they weren't, you know, aggressively going in and buying treasury to create electronic money. But 
they they were not doing what they're doing now. What they're doing now is they're borrowing money in the repo, reverse repo market. That's almost 100% of the incremental, if you will, uh, funding of assets I, it, I, I, 100% is not the right number but it's 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 close to the right number so instead of you know using their ability to print money or to you know buy treasuries you know they're going into the short term money markets and borrowing trillions of dollars you know and rolling it over every week in order to maintain the size of their balance sheet the other thing is that balance sheet has, as we said before, more liabilities than it does have in assets. And the, and the differential is $1.1 trillion. That's, that's never, ever happened before, either from a percentage basis or an absolute basis. Now, I don't think, I don't think it ever happened before. I don't, I don't have the numbers, so I, I can't say this with certainty, but in the last hundred, uh, in, in, in eight years, I don't think you've ever seen a situation where the liabilities of the Federal Reserve exceeded their assets. So, you know, yeah, they can print a trillion dollar coin. But that's simply going to, you know, explode inflation, you know, because everybody is going to recognize that this is not real money, that this money is simply being used, you know, to offset, you know, whatever needs the federal government may have. But um, I, I just think you can't have the central bank, which has negative equity of $1.1 trillion, which is funding itself by borrowing money in the reverse repo market and, and believe that you I got a solid underpinning of the financial system of the United States. I, 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 I can't buy it. I just can't buy it. So we reached the debt ceiling this Thursday, I believe, and we could continue on into June. Um, in a note, Dick, you said the Freedom Caucus in the house will discover how much power they actually have. I mean, are they the uh, elephant in the room here? Well, they claim to be, uh, and and obviously they were in the election of uh, you know uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House of Representatives. But but the fact of the matter is that uh, you know it, it may be now that he is Speaker that he he can reach out in a broader sense uh, and get a consensus, even if they are not willing to go along with him. Uh, and the Freedom Caucus has a lot of good ideas, in my estimation. In other words, they're saying, okay, if if you wanna if if you want to have a debt ceiling keep going up you know you, you you've got to figure out a way to pay for it you, you got to come up with some system to pay for it now they may want they don't want to increase taxes they want to cut you know spending but the fact of the matter is they are correct in their view that uh we we cannot keep doing this we cannot have a nation capable of repaying its debt uh, unless it takes some draconian steps, which isn't capable of paying the interest on the debt, which is seeing the interest on the debt skyrocket because of what the Fed has done and, and, and the whole system backed by a central bank, which isn't solvent. I mean, I don't, I just don't see how we continue to do that. I, I would say I, I, the Freedom Caucus, I mean, as much as I'm not sure I align with them politically, I, I, I'm super in love with the idea of returning to regular order where bills are drafted in committees, have to be voted on by the committee and get a majority to get out to the floor. Yeah. And then they go through an amendment process through floor debate. And that you have a weak speaker, so it empowers the people, they're representative of the people. You know, as much as you can argue with how the Congress and the Senate are set up, the House is the closest we've got to representing the people. And 
you know, the last eight to 12, maybe 16 years, it's really just been the Speaker of the House that has almost all the power. And they get to draft the bills late at night. They usually do it just before a Christmas holiday and give the, you know, the 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 voters, the, the congressmen, um, you know, two to three hours to read a seven or eight thousand page bill that they have to vote on. And then they whip them and say, if you don't vote for this, we're going to kill your chances in the primaries. And And so I really appreciate the return to regular order. Dick is right that the Freedom Caucus has some good ideas in terms of debt reduction. What they're really lacking is any sort of proposal to get there. They're just their their only tool is to be intransigent and and say, hey, we're we're not going to vote for any more bills. Well, what are you going to cut? And as much as I'm anti-tax and pro-prosperity, I, I I do study math. I do you know I can read, and the math is pretty bad if all you're doing is saying, hey, we're not going to spend the money on the bills we've already authorized, and we're going to use the debt ceiling to stop it. Well, you have to cut something, or you have to increase taxes, or you have to come up with some other alternative solution, which would be more like, you know, modern monetary theory where you just print the money and pretend it's not debt. I mean, you, you, you're stuck with bad choices if you're not going to give yourself options. And I don't think they're willing to say what they really think, which is they want to cut entitlement programs, but you know, that's a political loser. So they can't say it. So they're, I guess, being intransigent and hoping the Democrats propose entitlement cuts. The, the whole thing is crazy. And, and as much as I appreciate what they're doing, I think it's going to end in disaster if they don't come up with hardcore policy proposals that the American people can get behind, that they can convince the Democrats to also get behind, because you have to get through the Senate and get Joe Biden to sign it. So it doesn't matter that they control one one of the one half of of a third of the government. I think that uh, what what is happening here could be very very positive, right? In other words, if these guys hold out, you know, I I and and I agree with Matt. They got to get come up with some specific proposals as to why they're holding out. But the fact is, if they hold out and they force the type of negotiations that was forced to get McCarthy elected uh, as as speaker, you know, we could come away with a series of uh, pieces of legislation which really do work at, you know, uh, getting the United States budget, you know, balanced in 10 years, which I think is what their goal is. Uh, and, and so I I am not anti-freedom caucus in any way, uh, you know, in terms of in terms of what they're fiscally attempting to do. I, I believe that what they're fiscally attempting to do is right. What the other stuff that they do, I hope never to get involved with. But, but the point is, you know, they, they th- this is an opportunity to straighten out the budget of the United States, which we should take and we should straighten it out. <clears throat> Whether they're going to do it or not, I don't know. I don't know. Well, we'll watch. I mean, many members were, it's never clear to me how many members are in the Freedom Caucus. I've seen 45 listed. They're kind of secretive about who are the members. Um, and of course, the other issue is the White House is not going to negotiate cuts, right? I mean, they're going to dig the heel in. They got to negotiate cuts. I mean, they have to. I mean, they can't, they just can't go along attempting to, uh, you know, pass bills to increase the deficit without any uh, worry or concern about where the money is going to come from to to pay for this. I mean, they have they have got to sit down and 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 deal with this issue in in a rational fashion and and take the political stuff off the stage. You know, we do not have enough money to pay the interest on the debt. 
We do not have enough money to refund the debt that comes due. We cannot continue to be in that situation. And as interest rates have risen, so has the servicing of that debt. Absolutely. <laughs> as Matt has pointed that out over and over again. Yeah, that's what's really worrying. Busy time on bank earnings, Dick. You've been buried on numbers and making a lot of comments and analysis. How do you see the banks in the you last week we spoke about the long term outlook for the banks. That's all positive and it's an interesting scenario you laid out there. But in the short term, where are we at? Well, you know, it's it's difficult to uh, to explain this. Uh, in fact, I attempted to do it um, twice on, on, on television interviews on Friday, um, and and I I don't know to the degree that I succeeded. But the way I like to look at it is this: if if we were talking about General Motors and we said that General Motors just showed a double digit, a low double digit increase in car sales. And that the margins on those cars were up, you know, 20 to 30, uh, actually 40 to 50 basis points. We would say General Motors had a phenomenal quarter. All right. Now, the product that banks sell, and this is the thing that people can't understand, is loans. Loans are a product like a car, like a semiconductor. That's what these banks sell. And the increase in loans in the quarter that just ended was in the low double digits. Uh, and, and for some entities, it was bigger than the low double digits. All right. At the same point in time, the margins that they were getting on the loans that they were selling exploded on the upside. In other words, they were getting 40, 50 basis points more, which is like a 25 to 30% increase in the margins on the loans that they were selling. The net result is they came in with phenomenally good earnings. All right. That should have meant, and ultimately the market understood it, they went from, you know, being down in the morning to being up at the end of the day. But that, that's what the market should have focused on. Instead, uh, initially, all of the commentary was focused on the increases in their loan loss provisions. Now, you know, loan loss provisions is a farce. It's a comedy. It's a joke. Uh, it is the dumbest thing that the accountants have ever come up with, uh, at least in the banking industry. I'm sure given what accountants are, they've got dumber things that they've done elsewhere. But this, this was just pure stupidity. What the accountants decided two years ago, was that every time a bank made a loan, it should assume that they were going to lose a certain percentage of the money on that loan. And then, so you say, okay, so I made a loan for a hundred bucks. I assume I'm going to lose a buck fifty of the hundred bucks or one and a half percent. So the question is, how did you come up with that number, one and a half percent? Well, you have to make an assumption as to what the economy is going to do. So now Bank A says, I think the economy is going to be terrible. We're going to have a bad recession. And therefore, instead of putting up a 1.5% reserve, I'm going to put up a 2.5% reserve. And that really hits earnings, right? Another bank says, I don't think we're going to have a recession. I think we're going to be in good shape. And therefore, we're not going to put up 1.5%. We're going to put up 1%. And the market, instead of focusing on what these companies are selling, are focusing on these wild ass estimates. I can use that word, you know, you know, that, that are coming out of these banks. Now, the, the question is, when, when you get at it, do they actually have a reserve? 
you know, in other words, they're fighting over what the size of the reserve should be. Do they have reserves in the banks? They do not. They do not have one penny of reserves in any bank in the United States. If you think of reserves as a pool of money, which has been set aside to cover, you know, losses, they don't have it. It doesn't exist. This is simply an accounting artifact. So we're having these huge arguments over these provisions on something which doesn't exist and it's affecting the stocks in 2020 you know these banks had to increase their provisions because of the implementation of this new rule the bank stocks get you know get get jammed right in 2021 it was assumed that the recession that the bad times were over and the banks were, were going to you know show you know reductions in their loan losses and the reserves the, the reserves were reduced and the bank stocks went way up I'm sorry, the bank earnings went way up and the bank stocks benefited. So instead of looking at you would look what you would look at at any companies, how many widgets did you sell? What was the profits on the widgets you sell? What the market is looking at is what's going on with this thing that doesn't even exist. There is no reserve in a bank. There is no reserves set aside in a bank. All right. Now, why don't they have reserves set in a bank? Let's assume, all right, John, that you loaned me a hundred bucks, you know, two years ago. And I say, John, you're a hell of a good guy. I'm never going to pay you the hundred bucks back. When did you lose the hundred bucks? Did you lose the hundred bucks today? Or did you lose it two years ago when you loaned it to me? So that's the essential problem of setting up a reserve because you're setting up reserves against money you've already lost. And you're making the assumption because you lost this money, you're going to continue to lose money in the future. So bank analysis in the United States is simply horrendous. If you would just focus on what did they sell? What were the profits on what they sold? This was an incredibly strong quarter. And if you're worried about how bad is the loan portfolio, they tell you. They tell you how many bad loans they've got as a percentage of their total loans. And for every one of these banks, except Wells Fargo, the number went down. In other words, they've got fewer bad loans on their books. They're selling more stuff. They're getting these margins at levels that they could only pray for in the past. They're making a huge amount of money. And as we said, when we talked about the longer term stuff elsewhere, those earnings are going to continue to go up. So um, some of this is like a kind of like a fictional financial accounting. I mean, they're guesstimates, these reserves, and you think we should focus more on real hard numbers, performance in the different units, trading, wealth management, uh, deposit accounts. Look at the hard numbers. Yeah, in other words, can you imagine an industry in which you're basing your stock picks based upon guesses of something that doesn't exist? You're guessing what the reserves should be, and you don't create the reserves one way or the other. So these stocks are moving on guesses on something that doesn't exist. And I find that to be a, a bizarre. All right. Look at what they're selling. Look at what the profit margins are on what they're selling. Look at how many returns they get on the products that they sold, which is the, 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 the bad loans on their books. And you can make a decision on that. And what you're going to see if you do that is number one, the banks are increasing their market share aggressively 
against the capital markets companies, which, you know, just got blown away today with their earnings, and the non-bank companies, which are struggling to stay in business. The banks have got money. They're lending the money. They're making big profits on those loans. That means those stocks are really attractive. Because you've made the point um, previously that the banks are going to be in the catboard seat in terms of uh, loans to the commercial sector going forward because the Federal Reserve or whoever else, other institutions are not going to be able to fill that void. Yeah, well, I think that, that we we saw that. We're seeing that. You know, we, we've mentioned before that defense stocks were up in 2022. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, natural resource stocks, particularly energy, were up. They didn't beat the market. They were up when the market was down. All right. So the question is, who's going to provide the money so John Deere can go out and do what it wants to do? What Martin Marietta can go out and do what it wants to do? You know, who, you know, Emerson Electric is going to go out. And do, the, the money is going to come from the banks because that's where that's what banks do. They lend money against hard goods, hard assets, you know, factories, machinery, products, inventory, that type of thing. And if that's where the growth in the economy is going to come from, the need for the banks is going to grow dramatically because again, capital markets companies are not getting the funding necessary to provide that that those monies and the non-banks have to pay too much to get that money, and therefore they can't relend it in a competitive basis. So they're not going to be able to do it. So we have this need to fund these products. We know where we can get the money from. They are doing it. You know, commercial industrial lending was up 13% in 2022, not down, up. It was up 13%. So, you know, my, my, my belief is, and, and I believe that we're going to go to the banks and, and beg them to refinance the housing markets at some point in 2023. Uh, the banks are the place to go. Now, which banks? Look in Cleveland. Look in Pittsburgh. Look in Cincinnati. Look in Birmingham. You know, go, you look in Detroit. You know, go go to these cities which you think are, are in total decline and understand that, you know, if we do get this manufacturing defense, uh, food, food also, uh, Minneapolis, look at Minneapolis. You know, you, you, those are the cities that are going to benefit from it. And the banks in those cities, and we can put a bank name with every one of those cities, you know, those are the banks that you want to take a look at. Cleveland is Key Corp. Pittsburgh is PNC Financial. Cincinnati is Fifth Third. Birmingham is Regions Financial. Minneapolis is U.S. Bank Corp. You know, there is a big bank in every one of these cities, which these cities are going to recover because we're going to recover manufacturing. We're going to recover natural resources. And, and the bottom line is you, there are banks there that, that, that should be bought as investments. And we, we, you know, as a firm are recommending all of those banks uh, for purchase. And, uh, you know, just, just for compliance purposes, you know, if you contact your salesman at uh, Odeon Capital, we'll get you whatever reports that you need to, to justify the statements that I just made. And these are Midwestern banks you were um, talking about there, which look attractive in your opinion, Dick, um, also on bank earnings, <clears throat> you have a note about loans and the, you, you note that the consumer has topped out in terms of credit cards and autos. Uh, credit card debt just is up, it's hit one, just over one trillion last year. And so that was up 15% from the year prior and auto lending 
stands now around 1.5 trillion. So um, that's maybe an area that the banks are a little nervous about because we hear that they're expecting and preparing for a recession. There are two things that are going wrong here, right? The first thing is, uh, you know, you had this huge jump in credit card debt, which, uh, you know, you would expect to see on a seasonal basis because Christmas and, and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa, if you want. Uh, so so the net effect is, you know, you're basically dealing with, uh, you know, a seasonal surge in, in lending, which won't be there in the first quarter and in the second quarter. Um, so you're going to see credit card lending weaken. It looks like the automobile, uh, if you will, um, cycle has ended because car, used car prices are coming down. You're getting more cars on the lots and, and, and car prices are starting to, to wiggle a little bit. You know, housing is, is not, you know, expanding a, a, any longer. Well, you, you know, it wasn't expanding that much all through 2022. But the point is, it's, it's housing activity is weakened. You know, the prices of housing have, have peaked and are starting to weaken. That's the consumer. So who buys that stuff? The consumer. So why isn't the consumer, you know, stronger? Well, because, uh, as, as, uh, some pundits said, we, we have lost uh, somewhere between one week to one month of wages. Uh, in the United States associated with, you know, the, um, uh, you know, associated with, you know, the, the, uh, fact that, um, inflation is simply taking the money away. In other words, you got all these people on television saying this is what bread costs, this is what milk costs, look at what the hell eggs are costing. That's, that's, that's buying power that's gone. Well, there was, um, a headline number last week out in New York, Matt, you, you maybe you purchase your eggs in Manhattan. I don't know it. $12 for a dozen eggs. Yeah, no, but what I'm saying is Bank of America every quarter would come out and say, you know, there's more money and there's no money in these, in these checking accounts. These companies have more money in their checking accounts. So basically the consumer is in great shape and is going to go spend a lot of money. What Bank of America does not say. The point is that um, the, the the buying power of money has decreased meaningfully. So the fact that there is more money in the uh, in, in the credit in the in the um, bank account is not a fair statement of the buying power of the consumer. What what you know uh, Brian Moynihan has to start saying is this is the amount of money that we have in the bank account, and this is what its buying power is today versus yeah. what it was, and it's not it's not. The, the consumer cannot buy as much as they were buying, and that's going to have an impact on the consumer area. And by the way, if you want to put that with a bank, you know, the big banks are the ones that have the credit card portfolios. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, we, we did not upgrade uh, JP Morgan and we did not upgrade Citigroup, who are among the biggest, uh, you know, credit card companies in the United States. I would also point out, I mean, you're, the the people who are tone deaf on this, you know, run the gamut. I mean, this morning you saw Rishi Sunak's government kind of celebrating their um, uh, increased wages that, that showed up in their statistics this morning. And, you know, uh, Joe Biden was famous for putting out a tweet about six or seven months ago bragging that um, Social Security recipients were going to get 10.7% more the most under any president since like the foundation of, of social security, you know, and it, and it took uh, Elon's new fact check model to be like, uh, the only reason that's going up is because your inflation is insanely high. And then I think last week, 
the the White House was out running around excited about the 5.1% increase in, in workers' pay, you know, not mentioning that inflation is exceeding that, not to mention that inflation is probably going to go down at some point. But but the idea is that politicians and, and consumer advocates love to celebrate wage increases, and Dick's right. They're not purchasing power increases. They're just nominal wage increases at decreased purchasing power rates. Yeah, inflation adjusted. I love this quote from J.P. Morgan's uh, Jamie Dimon talking about recession. Uh, he's talking on both sides of his mouth, as far as I can tell. It may be a mild recession. It may not be. I don't know what that means. It means it could be anything. Where's <laughs> <laughs> choice? It may be or it may not be. That's what it means. <laughs> but I think that, uh, you know, he, he's been very clear in believing that, that a recession is coming. Uh, and I think what he's now doing is uh, backing off his more extreme statements concerning what the recession might be, uh, because essentially um, he had been saying, you know, that there would be a disaster, you know, a year ago. Uh, and I don't know if anybody, everybody in the bank jumped on him or what have you, but, but he, he, he backed off that statement. And now, uh, he's, he's, uh, backing off, you know, a promise that there'll be a recession. Uh, and, and, and I think that, uh, one of the interesting questions that each one of these banks were asked by multiple analysts in these uh, conference calls is, um, do you expect interest rates to be cut once or twice in the second half of this year. In other words, they, they, they were simply saying that the Federal Reserve, you know, has no meaning, you know, in terms of what it says about, you know, higher for longer, uh, because we're going to be in a recession is their theory. And they want to know what the banks are going to do, because as I say, profit margins have exploded on the upside. Uh, they, they want to know what the banks are going to do, uh, you know, to cut the, um, to cut interest rates, you know, in the second half of uh, of this year, uh, and and you know, the the bank managements did not, you know, say you know automatically. Look, the Fed says it's going to do this, and that's what we're going to do. I mean, I I recall, I mean, I recall studies, and and I think there's like a um, Zoltan Pozar from from Credit Suisse puts out the dot plots versus reality, and there's been no point in time that I can recall where the Fed's dot plots, where they're predicting where the interest rates will be, you know, I think they go out 24 months, has ever come close to what they actually do. Um, it's an exercise in futility for them to to kind of forecast. And, you know, we're, we're all students of the market. We're all at some point in time, probably believers in the efficient market hypothesis, which is that all you know available information is priced in, and what you have right now is is rate cuts that are priced into the bond market. Unfortunately, whether you believe it or not, that's what the the market's pricing in. I, I kind of wonder. There's one thing that I've noticed that's been under the radar, and I've been waiting for someone else to notice it and point it out, and I haven't yet seen it. But if you go to the U.S. Um, CPI, the Bureau of Labor Statistics website, they have on their very front page, very top row a note that says they're changing the way they're calculating inflation beginning next month. And it used to be that they would average, they would use this year's price index against last year's and the year before prior price index average. So they would compare it versus two years, not one year. And they're switching um, starting next month to only comparing it to last year. 
And I think that that could have a meaningful effect in bringing down inflation because the year-over-year numbers are going to look a lot better if you're only using 2022 rather than the lower price 2021. And psychologically, I think that could impact the Fed. I think they're still trying for the soft landing. I think interest rates are going to be lower. I think the banks are right and that the Fed is trying to mislead because they're trying to bully the market into believing that they're serious this time until they run out of options. Um, but there's a lot of moving parts here. But the credibility of the Fed being some sort of you know stable anchor that you can rely on is not one of those things that you can, can rely on. So will we see interest rates rising this year? That's the expectation, obviously. Yeah, of course. They're gonna I mean they're gonna be raising interest rates this next meeting. They're gonna be raising interest rates for a while. I think the question is, do they start cutting this year? Yeah. And so we're, right now we're at a range of four point two five to four point five. That's the Fed funds rate. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Questions and comments, email podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. Uh, Dick, you've had um, some, well, I won't call it notes, but you've been looking at regulation in the US markets and you have sort of a, some personal anecdote and also some analysis on it and some strong opinions about how we regulate the markets and don't regulate the markets. Yeah, well, I think regulation is not even across the markets, right? In other words, just yesterday, which was a holiday in the market, uh, I spent uh, six hours doing eight tests to uh, requalify as an analyst, uh, and I've got to do them every year uh, because of the demands being made by the financial institutions, regulatory authority. Uh, nobody's doing any tests in the crypto market. Nobody's doing any tests, you know, in, in, in the meme stock area. You know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, regulation is simply not being applied equally across markets. And I, I think that if you look at where the huge losses occurred, you know, in, in 2022, uh, they weren't really uh, in, in the, uh, if you will, established companies, you know, traded on the established exchanges with by established brokerage firms they were they were in areas uh, around the fringes uh they were in the crypto market they were in the meme stocks they were in uh you know uh places like robin hood so i mean essentially um if if the fed you know i'm sorry if if the regulators want to make it an even playing field they should you know start equalizing and they can do it either way. They can either increase the regulation in the markets which are basically unregulated, or they can decrease the regulation in the markets which are overly regulated. Because the cost of regulation among those entities that have to pay for it is huge. It's 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 a major factor in, in the earnings of companies even as big as JP Morgan Chase or a Bank of America. I mean, it, it is not an insignificant cost. Uh, so you've got all these guys who don't have to pay a dime for regulation, and you got all these guys who got to pay huge amounts of money for regulation. It's it's just not correct. It's just not right. It's just another <laughs> beef, I guess, one can have with Washington. 
So crypto is lightly regulated and these speculative markets are also lightly regulated? They're not regulated. Does zero regulation on crypto? You could do what you want out there? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that was I mean that that's that's, that's the that's the whole that's the whole scandal behind FTX, which was SBF is out there running around. I think he went to the White House six times last year. He's good friends with Gary Gensler. He's good friends with a lot of the senators. I mean, you put it put it in any politician's name, and SBF has probably donated money to them. And he's running around, you know, in an unregulated market with what turned out to be a balance sheet on a on a Excel spreadsheet, running a massive company, which you know, I run a regulated broker dealer, Dick's right. We we get we have to do. Um, I think it's called uh, education. You know, it's not exams; it's uh, educational modules where you have to go through and watch videos and 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 learn the new latest regulations that you have to follow and and keep up to date on everything that you have to do. And then once a month, we have to submit to an SEC audit and a FINRA audit. Um, you know, it's a light audit, but we have regulators that we submit our our financials to once a month and every month they call up or send emails asking questions about cash movements, about trades, about customers. I mean, we have someone looking over our shoulder all the time and in the crypto space, all you have to do is print a coin, uh, you know, F SBF proved, proved this, but he's not the first one that, you know, this is, this has been going on since crypto was invented. Go back and look at Mt. Gox. They were the very first famous um, crypto firm to blow up. And I think that was in 2011. There's been no regulation since then. Now, I, I do think Dick saying that um, comparing them to financial services firms is a little bit of a red herring in the sense that like, what is crypto? I mean, you you'd still have a debate over what it is. Some people think it's the new alternative. It's the new gold. I, you know, I, we, we always disclose that we own or I own Bitcoin. I can't remember if Dick owns Bitcoin or one of the other coins. But at the end of the day, if it's not the new gold, which is you know a commodity that basically it's a bearer bond type thing. If you possess it, you own it. Um, it it's it's not a stock. It's not a well. Some people argue that it is a security, but it's something other than what we've already dealt with. So it's very unclear which body should go in and regulate it. Because if the SEC goes in and starts regulating it, it almost gives it the 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 fake you know virtue of being regulated as if it's now an asset class. And I think they're still trying to decide if it is an asset class or if it's more like Beanie Babies or Tula Bulbs. Yeah, I think this is the nut of the problem in some ways because the financial markets gives extensive coverage to crypto and what they're trading at and these ETFs based on crypto. You're talking about and, CNBC. I wouldn't say those are the financial markets. Per well, se. let's at least one for sure and maybe some yeah. fringe markets out there. But um, I mean, this is the whole chaos in crypto because a lot of unsuspecting investors feel wow, the government is there to protect me here on this. Well, they shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, the, the other area, though, is the non-bank financial market. Who's regulating that? I mean, if somebody decides uh, to open up a firm and say, you know, we'll lend you money, uh, just send me, uh, you know, your financials over the internet, and, and we're going to charge you 35 to 50%, uh, you know, on an annualized basis, but we'll lend you 100,000 bucks almost without looking. You know, all of these companies, they're not regulated. Nobody's going in there saying, uh, you know, show me your loan book. You know, so we can see the, 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 what you're doing, you know, well, your effective, uh, you know, loan rates, you know, are, are as high as 50%. That's price gouging. Or, or, I know Matt doesn't like that word. That's, that's, 
that's uh, <laughs> the uh, definition, uh, I guess, is why he quibbles yeah. on. Well, that's right. But anyway, the point is that um, none of this stuff is regulated, and all of this stuff is going to go bad big time if we have a recession. And therefore, the problem is not going to come from the banks. It's going to come from the non-banks. So again, th th that's obviously self-serving because we're saying to buy banks. But the fact of the matter is that these non-banks are in trouble. These mortgage companies, if they don't have mortgage servicing, these mo these more excuse me, these mortgage companies are in trouble. These commercial lenders are in trouble. These consumer lenders are in trouble, and 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 they're in trouble in part because they've been allowed to do whatever they choose, charge whatever they want, and they're just not being regulated. Speaking of crypto, we had a great discussion um, on geek skeezers and Googleization. Their live webinar that they hosted for us uh, last week. It's all up there on geek skeezers and Googleization. Their podcast, and it's up on YouTube and various social media platforms. We talked about crypto. Just want to give them a shout out. Um, and it's interesting what you're saying about um, uh, Sam Bankman freed uh, the Excel sheets. I mean, again, that I was asked about the similarities or not between Bernie Madoff and Sam. And well, that's another similarity because Bernie kept, you know, these um, phony financial records he used to send out to customers that were dreadful. I mean, geez, they were like from some antiquated 1950s printing machine and sam was using i guess an excel spreadsheet yeah well i i personally uh, don't like big government but i do believe that when someone breaks the law they should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law uh and and uh, you know i think that uh, th th there's so much going on in, in these markets that we've just mentioned, that it does require some oversight to protect the consumer, to protect businesses, and that oversight doesn't exist. Dick and Matt, we're out of time. A great conversation, and we'll be back next week for episode 53 of Audion Capital Conversations. Take care. Thanks for those insights earlier, Dick. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording, January the 17th, 2023, neither Dick nor any member of his household has a financial interest in the debt or equity securities of the various banks he referred to during this episode on his latest research and has not received any compensation from the companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from these companies and the companies are not investment banking clients of the firm. Dick's written reports on the banks are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com and additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odiancap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab. All investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. 
Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.